may I say first of all, uh, Archbishop uh, and Dean, uh, how very moved I was by uh, your, your remarks, and particularly by your invocation uh, of the word. You made reference to the role of the word in my own life, uh, academically, my words that I've often cast out and seen echoed and contradicted in my time in politics, but also words that I have used here on occasions speaking to members of the diplomatic corps. I should tell you something else as I reflected on your speech. It is the word was more important still because it was uh, through words and language that I myself escaped from poverty. It was a time when one would not assume that one would be able to go to second-level education in Ireland. And as I often thought about that, part of the things that has been driving my own thinking has been on the importance of participation and the languages that are necessary to participate in society. I think of all the languages of Africa that have to be left aside, for example, uh, to learn a new language so that one can make a living in the city or one make a living abroad. And perhaps we too ourselves don't think often enough about the languages of those ancestors of ours who had to learn a new language to be able to earn a, a living in a new atmosphere, in a new economy. And then the huge moral challenge of saying, learn the new language, are you required to forget the old language? How many languages are dying on the world? And are we not losing a great deal with the loss of these, these languages? And then there were the languages of exclusion, the languages of indifference, the languages of hate. So words are important. I heard that phrase first, words matter. I think it was used first by Václav Havel on getting an award from, uh, at the Frankfurt Book Fair. I met Václav Havel and often discussed that. I discussed it twice with him. And also I can say as well, I remember being able to identify with the great despair that he felt at the betrayal of words. If you have been struggling, for example, for freedom, words have mattered very, very much. And then the words have been reduced to what I have recently described as a mumble within the Weberian cage of democracy. I remember Havel's remarks after having visited the institutions of the European Union for the first time, and his expressed disappointment, even though he was powerfully committed to a Europe of peace and development. So words, you chose well, Brian, having this reflection on, on words. And if I think as well, there is something else about words themselves, as what of societies and heads of state and representatives who remain mute when a moral response is required? I have recently, my recent visit to Poland, for example, the people who stayed silent. And then there are those who are rendered mute, who haven't been chosen to be mute, 
but rendered moot by exclusion by assuming that people in general cannot understand the decisions taken about their lives, that it only belongs to a group of, ex of experts. I think it is very, very important. And I think the burden has to be carried by us all. The burden, because I think if one doesn't speak out when it is necessary in many, many cases, I think one learns the risk of indifference becoming a kind of treason of morality and tr truth itself. I have just come back from a visit to Auschwitz, where, of course, we re remembered and reflected on the silence of so many in the face of what was so clearly immoral. The Aethiong meeting, so many countries represented, who wouldn't represent, who couldn't take any of those threatened, and so on. This is important memory, not to render one useless, but to be accepted. <coughs> In proposing, I think we're meeting now, as a very vulnerable time for diplomacy. It is one not of support, or indeed suggested amendment of our uh, multilateral institutions, but there are those who are seeking to destroy these multilateral institutions, to move back to a narrow version of international affairs. And yet, being opt not optimistic but positive, we have been given the opportunity of cooperating, transcending these sources of divided history, even if we are being blocked by some of the most powerful in the international community. And that has been in relation to the great challenges we face together. We have an opportunity in tackling climate change and biodiversity, which together compose the largest threat to our shared future on Earth, an existential threat that is the greatest of all the contemporary crises we face together. We have arrived at a position of where Tierra Madre, and it isn't accidental that nature is referred to as a woman and as a mother in so many cultures of the world, is that we have imposed through the Anthropocene such a matter on the very earth itself. We are no longer in harmony with the earth, nor are we in harmony really with each other. For even as we have applied science and technology the way that we have, we have predicted what is really what scholars now can call a catastrophe of feeling. I think, in many cases, climate change is now moving so much faster than the efforts we are expending or enlisting to address it. And the cost of inaction is catastrophic. Far greater then it will cost us all to set out on a truly meaningful corrective path for those who survive. And with the Paris Agreement, we have both the framework and the foundations to move forward together. And climate action, too, is essential if we are to achieve the sustainable development goals. And taking the meaning of your words, are these words of New York and Paris to become dead words, Sans Magnus Anseberg has said, it would better that they had not been uttered at all if they are to become like ashes in our mouth. 
And while the United Nations is to be commended for bringing world leaders together every year for these important climate summits, they've often become enmeshed in incremental technicalities at these negotiations, resulting in a sense of public disappointment in the process because of the inability or indeed the unwillingness on the part of those defending interests to recognise that there is an emergency, that addressing the true scale of the crisis requires more urgent, more comprehensive mitigation measures and more stringent emissions targets to be agreed and implemented by all nations in the human interest. If climate change and its consequences represent our greatest challenge given its existential nature, coterminous with it is a widening inequality and the rise of extremist ideologies founded on fear and prejudice against the other. A democratic crisis, therefore, must also be identified as a further great challenge that we now face. The constitution of the other. How are we to look and interpret difference? And why are we doing so? These are great challenges, because we are in the midst of it, an unavoidable, we are in the midst, I think, it is an unavoidable global reality now of deepening inequality between and internal to nations and a loss of support for social cohesion that in turn has created a severe undermining of institutional credibility. That is the democratic crisis. All of these symptoms are sourced in a global failure in relation to addressing the fundamental issues of human need over greed and giving them <coughs> these shared needs of living fulfilled lives in different cultures and beliefs, priority over accelerated dysfunctional versions of growth. How often does the media, for example, ever speak of the peopled economies of the world, but rather of the economy as if it had no people? So you can get to a position where the indicators of an economy are somehow or another excellent, while the people are perishing, dividing, and mute, and made mute. The manifestations of this weakness in our global approach are to be observed globally. Publics have grown tired, cynical about the inability of our institutions to meet their needs, systems they see increasingly as being stacked against them. Again, I repeat it, the intricacies of policy they are told are beyond citizens' comprehension, are really the stuff of experts who know better. And then, the knowing, knowing that, and that that is a prevailing attitude, the alienated stare at the arrogant. And is it any surprise, then, that people succumb to the easy answers, peddled by extremists who seek to scapegoat minorities, immigrants, foreign or multilateral institutions, anyone or anything other than the inherent inequality and unsustainability of the policies that they themselves uphold, holding on to the destructive model at all costs for the benefit of the minority, who are insatiable in relation to what they wish to accumulate, irrespective of the consequences. So may I suggest that it is by deepening, perhaps, or fostering deeper political economic literacy among our people, by addressing the catastrophic loss of collective feeling 
in discourse and decision-making. You mention, Dean, my time in politics and all of the others. Sometimes it took courage to speak before a group of people or a crowd of people. But one honed one's words not to fool them. And there was something wonderful about marching with people side by side in demonstrations against apartheid and against all of those other issues. And we were able to speak to each other. And people educated themselves on the marches and the discussion afterwards. Now in this atomized, fragmented world where the technology exists to send messages, there is a catastrophe of loss of that feeling of the collective, of a world that could be made better, the derisory references to words like words utopia, which were so important in driving the moral movement of so many cultures in our world. And again, I believe in many cases that what I have said in relation to this new literacy, it is needed not just as a gesture towards intergenerational solidarity, but as a means, perhaps, of avoiding our legacy to the next generation being one of a hostile, conflict-torn and volatile planet Earth. And more and more have become convinced that debt at sovereign, institutional and household levels has evolved into a new source for what is little less than a form of unaccountable slavery, a circumstance that requires initiatives at United Nations level is so important, one that might redefine the roles of such institutions as the World Bank and the International Monetary Organization. Could any of you say that these institutions are fit for purpose for even the most minimal approach to what I have been describing? Our best hope of resolving the current impasse of curbing yawning inequality restoring faith in democratic process and avoiding ecological catastrophe is to adopt a new form drawn from pluralist scholarship not allowed everywhere now in our third-level institutions that will produce a heterodox economics, an eco-social paradigm shift based on a steady-state economics that will eschew the flawed concept of exponential growth. That is a model that places human need over greed, that values the limits of the ecosystem, that values the sociality of humans and their well-being over narrow and misleading metrics such as GDP, that focuses on how we are to be in the world rather than how we are to consume in the world, how we are to enter the world, take the world into us with respect for diversity and ethics. And I have the temerity to ask you all to make a reflection are all the governments you represent open to such a challenge? Is the space of discourse open to even consider such a change? The voices that come to me from the diplomatic world, its community, are not encouraging. For if we are to achieve a paradigm shift, it will be necessary to combine the radicalism that is in the consciousness of climate activism with the consciousness of egalitarianism, and programmes of inclusion of activists and feminists that have been advanced with courage and good scholarship for years, but discounted by those ignorant or fearful of change, are much more often committed to defending privilege at whatever cost, including the exclusion of the needs of universalism from policy. 
See, the community of diplomats cannot have a bounded discourse. It is tested, it seems to me, by its ability to absorb the agony of the world and suggest a response back home if it is to avoid what, for example, Pope Francis refers to as the sin of indifference. And an issue that will test us in the coming year is migration. Migration is central to our Irish consciousness. We in Ireland are a migrant people, always have been from our origin in 1901. More people who were born on this island lived abroad than on the island itself. This is through our famine in the 1840s into the modern period. Our country, which historically has seen people leave in their millions, is now a country of net immigration. Today, one in six of our population was born outside Ireland, and we have benefited from it. We've been transformed from a place where people were forced to leave to a country that now has the opportunity to be a place of welcomes. Yet we're being told by some that migration at a global level is a threat. Yet it is a fact that 12% of GDP in 2018 came from migrant labour. And while it undoubtedly presents challenges of management and opportunities for both source and destination societies, are these not challenges that we can address together? Furthermore, is the recent incident of migration not also linked now to the crisis facing us in relation to climate change, biodiversity loss, growing inequality, a delinquent financial system that has virtual credit and a loss of faith in our democratic institutions? And is it not possible to address them in a concerted and coordinated manner? For example, when considering how to mobilise the funding required to address migration, or the measures needed to deliver on our commitments on the climate and sustainability agreements, should we not be looking to initiatives that can address the capital that is seeking investment? So many funds, be it sovereign funds, pension funds, private funds, even within that decaying model, are seeking a return that is not now available to them, owing to the crisis of dead capital that is being invested, and indeed that may be dangerously engaged in increasing speculatively the value of shares that have ultimately no collateral. Capital is not now in productive use. It is used in its idleness to inflate virtual value without real collateral. A similar circumstance prevails in relation to credit. All of these sources of credit and capital currently not being utilised could be available to create a green economy, a just transition, sustainable development and solutions to migration issues in a way that is accountable, transparent, efficient and consistent with the United Nations Charter. Integrating a response to interacting crisis simply makes sense. The United Nations realised a circumstance such as this when it responded in the 1940s to a global financial crisis. It helped create a public economy that included human welfare, housing, health, education. Today we seem unable to act. The United Nations is being undermined, underfunded and mocked as a global institution. Yet it is the depository of our multilateral agreements and responsibilities, the words that should have been turned and might be turned into action. 
I just returned from the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. It was as a direct result of the aftermath of that world war that multilateralism gained credence as the best way forward for peaceful international relations. It came after the indifference of nations to which I have already referred. It ignored the threat of extermination of the Jewish people. The conference at Evian, when every nation represented, said no. The global powers were mute, unresponsive. And it is again today to the Palestinian refugees now in so many camps in so many countries, many stateless and foreign lands, the world now says no again. Today, multilateralism, yet it is our only option, despite the attempts of some powerful leaders to undermine it. And Ireland remains a strong advocate of the multilateral process. Ireland believes in the United Nations, supports its aims, and remains committed to continuous involvement in its work. We must not be hesitant in speaking of how multilateralism has not only saved us from disastrous conflicts, but has driven major advances for people across the world, from building programmes for poverty alleviation, better healthcare education, women's empowerment, and it is available to do so much more if we ask it to do so, agree for it to do so. But despite its many achievements, however, it would be naive not to refer to the failures of the unrealised commitments of our United Nations members. Gender violence continues to rise. Violence against women and girls is one of the most widespread, persistent, devastating human rights violations in our worlds today. Much of it behind closed doors. Kofi Annan, Secretary-General of the UN, in his 2006 report, said violence against women and girls is a problem of pandemic proportions. At least one out of every three women around the world has been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused in her lifetime, with the abuser usually some unknown to her. A new report just published a few days ago has documented how violence against women is rising in conditions of the changes affected by climate change. Such violence is in many member states of the United Nations allowed to prevail as a mechanism for the subjugation of women, whether in society in general or in an interpersonal relationship. It is simply and always an abuse of rights, sense of entitlement, domination, misogyny, or similar attitudes in the perpetrator, or because of a violent nature, especially against women. There can never be, I repeat it again and again, ever any cultural rationalisation for gender violence. But speaking of violence, has not the language of even global leaders been loaded with an aggression that seeks to support, that seeks support, often to source and exploit, populism? And is this not reflected too very often in the media that covers such adventurism of language? Then too, the arms race continues to rage, expand. Here we are in 2020 with the material capacity to abolish all forms of human poverty, alleviate all unnecessary suffering, and yet we are still devoting so much of our creativity 
not to the preservation or achievement of peace, but to the prosecution and preparation for war. Amidst great human suffering, some nations now seek to embark upon a new arms race, increasing not only their own stockpiles, but they are exporting weapons of death and destruction to fuel the fires of war in other lands. So many of the current conflicts are surrogate conflicts of the powerful and the arms producers. And we are in the throes of a trade war, a trade war between the most powerful, a war predicated in the most narrow version of perceived national advances rather than the needs of humanity. 2020, and we've arrived as trade war, as a means of undermining diplomacy, as an alternative to diplomacy. You can put it all together with the same violence of language. We need an effective United Nations. Ireland is clear in the need to reform the Security Council, believing, for example, that such an entity to have legitimacy, it should reflect the makeup of the world in which it exists, have the capacity and courage to respond. In particular, we witness an historic unjust underrepresentation of our most populated continent, Africa which was still ruled by colonial powers when the United Nations came into existence and the Security Council established. Africans must be given agency in council decisions affecting their own continent. And the key structural changes that are required in relation to Africa, they have been identified by the High Representative of the Commission of the African Union, Carlos Lopez and others, including changing politics, respecting diversity, understanding policy space, sustainable industrialization, increasing agricultural productivity, building a new social contract, adjusting to climate change, inserting agency in the relationship with key partners and foreign investors. And Ireland has been to the fore too in advocating for consideration of a designated role for small island developing states, the increasing effect of climate change on international peace and security gives that proposal even greater urgency. As President of Ireland, I am say, if Ireland is successfully elected to the Security Council, we will have the opportunity to address these issues meaningfully and to be tested and be held to account on them. That is why we are standing. In Ireland, too, I say this as, we fin as I finish, we are continuing a journey through a time of significant commemoration, marking and recalling our struggle for independence and some of the founding moments of our state. Memory is something we all have to work at globally. We in Ireland are challenged to produce a framework for the task of ethical remembering, as I have called it. This is a neglected project in so many member states of the United Nations, who have been the source of imperial adventurism, terror, exploitation, domination, dispossession. They must allow this period to be over, move past it by recognising and being honest about its consequences. Amnesia is not a strategy for such countries or their victims. Everybody could gain from those issues being transacted so that such an unaddressed history does not disable us, as Hannah Arendt might put it, from our present peaceful coexistence or future possibilities. 
and met with humility, may I suggest, that it would clear so much ground for the future where colonising countries and collaborative ethics to embark on such an exercise, for example, in the European-African historical relationship. Marfucker Square, a rich. In conclusion, may I wish each and every one of you, and through you and your heads of state, all of the citizens of your countries for 2020, a year of peace, new achievements and sustainability, renewed international cooperation, and the best of achievements in national and shared endeavours. Mila Buikas is Thank you, and every blessing. <laughs>